but there was also kind of a dark side uh, for me uh, at college when I when I went there. Indirectly made it clear that he felt like God wanted he and I to be best friends. And uh, over time, though, that meant uh, he wanted me to be his only main friend, and and he wanted it the other way around, too. He was a master at just kind of using guilt, even kind of using the Bible to guilt me if I didn't give him the attention that he was wanting or the kind of attention he was wanting. And so it, it got real messy. We were in the car, and we were on our way to the laundromat, and he just reached over and, and put his hand on my leg. It, it, was, a, it was a pass. You ought, you ought to be able to say, don't do that, you know, but I, I didn't know what to do. It scared me. Didn't know who to talk to after that. So I just I just kind of stowed that away and wished that that hadn't happened. Do you remember the story of Samson? He was the strongest man who ever lived. He only had one weakness, and there was one person who exploited that weakness, and her name was Delilah. She was a master manipulator, and she used her relationship with Samson to get what she wanted. Ultimately, this toxic relationship destroyed Samson's life. Have you ever been in a toxic relationship? Have you ever been manipulated by another person? Did this relationship consume your thoughts and emotions? The golden rule says to do to others as you would have them do to you. Shouldn't I try to help people no matter what? The Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself, but does that mean allowing someone to continue to hurt me emotionally? These are the questions that I want to ask our guest today as he tells us his life change story. I'm Eric Hutchinson, and this is the If Nothing Changes podcast. So, hey, friend, why don't you introduce yourself and let the listeners know who you are? Well, hey, my name is David, and I live in the northwest Arkansas area and uh, been in and out of here two or three times, but uh, been around here now since uh, uh, 2010. Wow. Well, yeah. so you're a, you're a resident. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Love, love Northwest Arkansas. Well, definitely. glad you're here, Dave, and thanks for agreeing to come here and share your story with us. Yeah, so uh, why don't you start off with telling us a little bit about your background? Where are you from? Where do you, where were you born? And uh, tell us a little bit about your, uh, your history. Okay. So uh, I guess uh, some people would say I was born in lower Arkansas. You know, I was born in Magnolia, Arkansas. My dad uh, was actually a pastor a Baptist pastor in a little town outside Magnolia called Macedonia. And uh, when I was one year old, we moved to the metropolis of war in Arkansas, tomato capital of the world, pink tomato tap capital of the world, and uh, lived there until uh, I was in fifth grade. And then we moved to kind of where I call home, and that's Spring Hill, Louisiana. It's just across the line south of Magnolia. And uh, that's really where, um, you know, I, I would, like I said, call home and and so much of, uh, of things that happened to shape my life in my early years happened there. So did you have any siblings, brothers, sisters? Or are you the only child? I was the only child, man. And my mom and dad lost uh, a, a baby before me, about two years before me, a son. And, um, and so, yeah, so I guess they decided to try one more time had me and thought that's enough. So, <laughs> so yeah, I'm only child. Okay. So 
Now, you said that you're a pastor's child. We call that a PK, a preacher's a PK. kid. Yeah. So I've heard all kinds of, I know the stereotypes and stuff. So uh, how did that work for you? So your dad, was there a close relationship with your dad? I mean, I know he was you know, at church a lot and ministering right. to other things. So what was it like for you growing up as a preacher's kid? You know, that's, that's a great question because I've heard a lot of horror stories, you know, uh, for me, overall, man, it was good. My mom and dad, um, they loved me well. Um, as far as like when you mentioned my dad, he definitely was what I would, you know, would call kind of the traditional pastor, which in the Baptist world meant he was preaching Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, visiting hospitals all the time, putting out fires, you know, just um, he, he was a busy guy. And and he grew up with a very strong work ethic as a, a South Arkansas boy, a family of, of, of uh, I guess, seven siblings, farm family. And so hard work was part of uh, what defined that generation. And I, and I, I grew, you know, to appreciate that. But I think uh, sometimes that, that hard, hard work ethic sometimes hindered our relationship because he, he was. Uh, he was gone a lot and... and and kind of married to the church in a way, right? And that, and I think for any pastor, that's a challenge. But, uh, but still, I did not feel, you know, like neglected. My mom was great in, in filling in a lot of those gaps uh, relationally. Did so. you feel like your dad loved you? Absolutely. I, I knew he did. And I think looking back, knowing he's from this tough farm family, for him to tell me that he loved me on a daily basis was probably like out of the norm. And But I knew that. Yeah, I knew that. Knew he cared for me. Yeah. How about your mom? Were you close to your mom then? Yeah, very close to mom. Uh, my mom, I think because of losing a child, uh, was a little overprotective of me. And so uh, there was always this kind of... Uh, little bit of fear and worry that was a part of my mom's makeup. Didn't want her little boy to get hurt. You know, I couldn't have a mini bike because she was afraid I'd get, you know, like one of my uncles, I'd get my leg tied up in the chain. So I couldn't have a mini bike, you know, and, and just, uh, she was overly cautious for me, but at the same time, um, was very uh, intentional about just sowing seeds uh, in my heart of, of knowing and loving God, you know, and music was a key part of that, which we can talk about later. Um, but she, um, yeah, she had a keen sense, as probably most moms do, of just being able to, to kind of read between the lines and see where I was at emotionally. Was I hurting? Was I happy? And, and would initiate conversation where I think my dad just didn't know for sure how to do that. You know? Yeah. So what did you think about yourself? We talk a lot about mm. identity. So what did David think about himself? What was your, what was the vision of yourself hmm. to others? You know, um, as a young kid, you know, all the way up, even through junior high, I was thinking about this, uh, recently that, that I was a bit timid for those of, you know, for those who know me might think you are never timid, you know, cause <laughs> I'm pretty outgoing now, but, but I, I think I felt, uh, a little bit shy, a little bit timid, uh, growing up into those junior high years. Um, part of that, I think just not having a brother or sister, I think really kind of affected my ability to know just how to interact. It was kind of weird. Uh, although, I. I could feel at home, but I, I think the one thing that, that really comes back to my memory is as a young boy was just 
feeling intimidated around boys my age or a little bit older who maybe were a little bit more athletic than me or uh, maybe they played on Little League Baseball or football. I mean, I tried peewee football one time, and, you know, it, it was it was fine. But I'm like, man, I don't want to do these setups every day. I can be home doing what I want to do. So, <laughs> so, uh, so it was kind of that thing of like, you know, if you weren't – in the sports team thing, then where do I fit? And and so I do think as, as a young kid, there was a little bit of just trying to figure out where I fit. Sure. Yeah. So tell me about, you mentioned earlier that music became an, an important role yeah. in your life. So when did music start becoming something that you were mm. interested in? Man, as far back as I can remember, my mom, uh, she played piano. And she loved to sit around the house, play piano, and sing. And she would get my dad and I in there uh, to sing uh, with her. And uh, but even more than that, we we had an old you know big console stereo, you know the thing the size of a couch that had a you know a record player in it. And and she was always playing music on that. And she would buy uh, albums and little uh, records, you know, for me to listen to mainly focused just on the Lord and cultivating a relationship with him. But those things resonated with me. And so for as long as I can remember, I've always heard music in our house, um, had always been exposed to vocal harmonies, that kind of thing. And, um, and when I was in fifth grade, we were still living in Warren and, um, Central Baptist college, uh, has a group called the Central Singers, and and uh, and they came every year to our church. And this particular year, fifth grade, they came, and they had two guys playing acoustic guitars and singing, and then they had like seven other vocalists singing. And it really was kind of coming out of that whole Jesus Revolution thing, right? It's like Jesus music. And uh, so they're doing this folk music, and man, I'd been taking piano because my mom made me. I'd made a deal. I won't do I won't do recitals if I so if I don't do recitals, I'll take some piano lessons, you know. But back then it was like that's not what a boy does, you know. He's supposed <laughs> to be out tough and playing football. But I took some piano lessons. But man, when I saw those guys playing guitar, something resonated for me. And especially afterward, as a fifth grader getting to talk to one of these guys who were probably, you know, 19 or 20. Uh, and them showing interest in me, man, that Christmas, I wanted a guitar, you know. And my mom and dad, uh, being the music connoisseurs they were, went down to the Western Auto Store in Warren and bought me a guitar right next to the, you know, the the good old tire section probably. <laughs> but uh, but that got me started, interest, you know, started my interest in, in learning how to play the guitar, and that opened up a whole new world for me. So let me ask you this question because – mentioning the preacher's kid thing. Yeah. So you were exposed to God or and to the gospel mm-hmm. and probably weekly, maybe daily. So when did David have mm-hmm. a God moment, and was it sincere as a child, or did that come later? <laughs> okay, you're exposing me here. So when, when I was... Uh... Man, I don't know, third grade or fourth grade, this is kind of... This is just... This is just goofy but it is what it is you know uh, I had this crush on this little girl in our church in Warren and I remember one Sunday morning my dad shared the gospel what you know what Jesus did for us and dying on the cross and rising again paying for our sins and 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 he, he did that every week well one Sunday morning he offered this this invitation for people to give their lives to Jesus at the end of the service well this little girl I had a crush on 
Man, she goes down there to talk to him, and I'm like, dude, okay. Uh, and all I remember is going home and telling my dad that I, you know, I wanted to be saved, as we we call it, you know, safe from our sins. And and uh, but all I really wanted was was an inroad into this little gal's life. I mean, that's just sounds so immature. But anyway, it was true. And 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 I remember my dad praying with me, but it meant nothing to me. It really meant nothing to me. So fast forward, I'm 11 years old. We're living in Louisiana. And uh, it was a different scene. I can I can remember um, just the reality, even as you know, a young kid at eleven, knowing, you know, man, I've done the wrong things. I know displeased God, and then I, and I, and also just the reality of knowing, man, someday Jesus is going to return. And um, I knew that the decision, my eternal destiny, and uh, what was going to happen to me when I died was was on me. It became very real, and. Uh, and so in that context, uh, over a few weeks, I really kind of battled with that. There was something stirring in my heart. I knew there was something going on. God was getting my attention, even as an 11-year-old. And ultimately, um, I came to that realization, you know, I know yeah, I had the little crush on that little girl back then, but there wasn't anything real about that. But what's going on in my heart and my head right now is very real, and God is drawing me to himself, and I need to accept that invitation. And so my mom... I talked to her about it, and we we knelt by uh, the couch in our living room in that that little house in Louisiana, and and I gave my life to Jesus on the Halloween night, nineteen seventy three. What know? a great night to accept yeah. Christ! Yeah, exactly. So. so, did you have a conversation with your dad because he had you know prayed with you before? <laughs> did you say, "Hey, Dad, uh, that really I did that for the girl," or how did yeah. that work? Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, growing up in the Baptist church, you always kind of had that invitation at the end of the service to to go down and tell the pastor if there's something going on in your life that you need to straighten out or if you had given your life to Christ. And so I, I guess, as best as I recall, I surprised Dad that night. We finished the service on Wednesday night. He offered this invitation. I go down and and tell him the scoop. Here's the real deal, you know, real deal. Did he respond good with that? Oh, yeah, yeah, he was happy. So it sounds to me like the music and God kind of coincided a little mm. bit there. Did your music display your relationship with God early, or did the, you pursue other kinds of music? Mm. Uh, God, I really think that was kind of like where I met with God a lot. I mean, I read the Bible, studied my Sunday school lessons, but when it came to going into kind of this deeper relationship with God and beginning to know Him, uh, I think so much of that happened in the context of either songs we sang in youth choir or that time really alone with Him with a guitar and a stereo uh, taking in a lot of lyrics, you know, of songs. And so He definitely communicated to me through music. So let me ask you this. So you're in high school, and were you confident enough uh, to ask girls out? Were you allowed to date? Did you date? I mean, uh, or, or not? Yeah, yeah, uh, not a lot. Uh, I was allowed to. I, I don't remember, you know, this age where mom and dad said, okay, now you can date. They were probably scared out of their wits, you know, just wondering when is that going to happen. I mean, I had, had some little crushes, you know, in junior high, um, but as I think back on high school, you know, man, I would, I would, uh, I would get into, you know, maybe 
a quasi dating relationship and would get scared, you know, <laughs> and I just didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't want to stay in there very long, you know, and, and I know, um, I know a lot now about relationships, you know, um, as far as like, okay, if you, if you hold a girl's hand, that indicates one thing. If you put your arm around her, that means something else. And if you kiss her, that really means something else. Well, you know, well, you got to get married, right? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's why I bailed. It's like I can't get married at fourteen. And so, uh, <laughs> no, but but it was kind of that thing of like, um, you know, uh, in 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 our flesh, it's like we. I held her hand, but now I want to put my arm around her. Well, now I want to do something else, you know, and. And but but that also indicated commitment, I think, right to to the girl, and uh, and I think it just scared me. It's like okay, I need to get out of this. I never was just in a long dating relationship at all in high school, and I think part of that maybe was um, just man, my involvement with church and everything was going on with our youth group and our and our music. Uh, but also I got uh, involved in student government in high school. Um, one of the, the teachers there, a guy named Philip Carroll in, in Spring, Louisiana, when I was in my sophomore year, and I was still semi-timid. I was goofy, but still semi-timid. And, and he approached me one day just out during a recess and said, Atterbury, you're running for parliamentarian of student government. And I'm like, what, what, what student government? What student council? I don't even know what you're talking about. And so... He explained it to me, and he was just encouraging me, you know, kind of it was one of those moments where this adult steps in and sees something in you that you have no clue. And uh, and so I ended up running for that office and got it and got involved in student council. And our student council met every day for an hour. It was a very active uh, part of our high school. And um, and that, man, that, that shifted uh kind of my trajectory because um, another youth pastor had come into our church. His name was Donnie Parrish, and Donnie uh, had a huge ap- impact in my life just as other youth pastors had, but it was at a significant point in time where where I observed a very um, uh, caring, uh, charismatic kind of personality guy. He was from South Louisiana. You know, he didn't have the accent, but he knew how to put it on, you know, and, and do that Cajun thing. But he knew he knew how to get in uh, with with our students in our church and encourage us to, to passionately love and follow Christ and serve him. And, man, I just loved him, and I wanted to be like him. You know, it, two, two men, my dad and, and Donnie, that I wanted to emulate. So you mentioned trajectory and yep. that— that going into student government kind of moved you in a different trajectory mm-hmm. than where you were headed. So mm-hmm. you're a senior in high school, you're graduating. So is college in your trajectory or it did, I mean, what, where did that new trajectory lead you? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially, uh, with Donnie Parrish's impact on me, man, even more than ever, I wanted to, to be like a youth pastor or youth director. We called it in that day. But in in our churches growing up, you know, it was kind of a package deal. You're the youth and music director, right? And so um, that was the thing. Okay, I'm going to go to college, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna do whatever it takes. I don't know what that is, but to to become one of those guys. And uh, so in that context, that really kind of limited my scope. You know, where where am I going? Especially on the youth ministry side. You know, I could study music at a lot of schools, but throwing in the ministry side of things, 
was different. And so there were a couple of colleges in our denomination that I was looking at and honestly, you know, auditioned for a couple of performing groups that uh, did PR for those colleges. And I took the one that gave me the most money, <laughs> gave me a scholarship. And that was Central Baptist College in Conway, which was a, a little bitty school at the time, about the size of two city blocks, you know, and uh, maybe I don't know. There might have been 200 students then, and a lot of those were commuters, so it was a pretty small school. But there was also kind of a dark side uh, for me uh, at college. When I when I went there, um, I got into this group, uh, really the, the college choir, and then this smaller ensemble of, of instrumentalists and vocalists that did uh, public relations uh, concerts for the college. And we were on the road every weekend, at least three weekends out of the month, we were on the road uh, singing at three or four churches a weekend and uh, promoting the school. And there was a guy uh, who was in that group the first year I was in it, and um, he was a year older than me. And uh, initially, man, just uh, we became friends and uh, and you know hung out together, uh, knew how to you know have have fun and and but. Over time, um, he he indirectly made it clear that he felt like God wanted he and I to be best friends. And uh, over time, though, that meant uh, he wanted me to be his only main friend, and and he wanted it the other way around too. That that uh, he would be the only person that was like my best friend. And other relationships needed to take a real distant backseat uh, to that relationship. He had come from an abusive background, and uh, he had shared a lot about that with me. And, um, and the, you know, I, I hurt for him in that, and I thought, well, maybe I can help him. And so uh, that's a little bit of my, my mom coming out, I think, of just, oh, you know, the the underdog, how, how can we come along and help? No one's had come from a great background. So I, there was almost probably even just a little bit of guilt, you know, and that man, I came from a great family. He didn't. So how can I be a, a good friend to him and help him? And, uh, but man, as time, as time progressed, um, you know, that helping became unhealthy, uh, I think he was so hungry and starving for relationship and um, a compassionate ear that he became very possessive of that and did not want to take any risk of that ever going away. So it, it was a, he 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 was a master at just kind of using guilt, even kind of using the Bible to guilt me if I um, didn't give him the attention that he was wanting or the kind of attention he was wanting. Um, and so it, it got real messy. And so you take, you take a person who has come from an abusive background and I can look back on this with a whole lot more clarity. He came from an abusive background, was manipulated as a young boy and young man. And, and honestly, I believe those tools became, those manipulation tools became some things that he, he accessed sometimes in our relationship and so you take a manipulator with a codependent people pleaser, which is a part of my story. I grew up, to, and I love my mom to death. Mom wanted to keep everybody happy, and I kind of picked up on that. How do you keep everybody happy? And um, and 
and even kind of that idea of what would Jesus do, you know, well, it's kind of like you think, well, Jesus would, you know, bend over backwards to make sure uh, this guy, you know, has what he needs. He needs a friend. Okay, I'll be that friend. It's exhausting me, but I'll be that friend. I'm not spending time with other people, but I'll still be that friend. And it's like, you know, now I know, well, Jesus didn't let people run over him and manipulate him, and I had to learn that later. But what what ended up happening, man, is just a very dysfunctional uh, relationship in that context. So how long was the relationship that, you know, that, that became toxic? When, mm-hmm. when did, when did that happen? Was it a year into it, two years into mm-hmm. it? And was there an event that the aha moment, the light bulb came on and you're like, this is not, mm-hmm. this is not healthy. I think sophomore year is where things kind of began to kick in gear. And the turning point was one time when we were we were headed to the laundromat. You know, we'd, we'd practice music at night. He was a music major, too, so we'd do our practice, and one night a week we'd get done early and we'd go to the laundromat and do laundry. And we were in the car, and we were on our way to the laundromat, and he just reached over and, and put his hand on my leg, you know. And I knew it wasn't like a, hey, man, I love you, dude, kind of thing. It wasn't that. It, it, was, a, it was a pass. And... Uh, and I can just remember being in his car just thinking, I I don't know what to do with this. And, you know, and it's really kind of crazy when you think about that. You'd think, man, <laughs> you, ought, you ought to be able to say, don't do that, you know. But I, I didn't know what to do. It scared me. Um, and like I said, didn't know who to talk to after that. So I just, I just kind of stowed that away and wished that that hadn't happened and I don't know what to do. And I don't know how to get out of out of – his sphere of influence. We lived in a little bitty dorm on a little bitty campus and there was no getting away. And so, um, that was the first of what became a few other, uh, attempts from his part, uh, to make, uh, I'm going to call it sexual advances toward me over the next three years. Yeah. So when did you have a, did you ever have a talk with him about that? Did you ever say, you know what, we're, we're starting to have boundaries that you're crossing that I'm not ready to, or I don't want to do. Mm. So well, how'd that happen? Not, not, not in the sense of like, specifically, I want to address this thing that you have done and this is not going to happen again. That, that conversation never happened, but I do remember, um, in regards to anger, um, this is kind of probably my my second strong memory of anger was one day just being in the dorm room and and ugh, man just feeling this sense of his trying to uh, to do something toward me and I just here I am at this Christian school man and I just remember yelling at him and I don't remember what I screamed but I screamed and I remember letting out an expletive in the middle of that. But I, I was so angry, and I think so frightened and trapped. And I, and I let all of that out, and then his response to me was, oh, Mr. Goody Christian, you know, Mr. Goody Christian, listen to what you just said, you know. And he was a cra- man, he was a craftsman. He, he, was, he was good at that. And, um, but I, I do think that probably was a turning point. Um, and I don't remember anything happening after that. So it's kind of like I put up a boundary for the first time. At least I didn't, it wasn't clear, but it was like, 
I'm ticked and I, I'm getting it out right now. So did you repair the relationship after that, or was that the break and you said no more? <laughs> I mean, how did that, how did it, wh- wh- where did mm. that relationship end or, mm. or did it? Uh, it didn't end. No. Um, you know, we, uh, we ultimately, honestly, we ultimately became roommates as unfun- dysfunctional as that was, you know, uh, the, the senior year we became roommates. Um, and I think looking back, I, it was almost like, boy, I, I, an addiction is probably not a good way to put it, but I, I think I just felt like I don't know any way out of this. I don't know who to talk about, about those advances that have been made. Um, and I, even, even when I would try, there were a few times that I said, I want other friends. I'm going to spend time with other people. And he would kind of throw a little smirky smile and guilt toward me. But I would try that. But ultimately... Again, you know, very, very small school. There was nowhere to go where he was not, in essence. And so it would just become default. I'd just default back to the dysfunctional relationship. Default back to there. Make the best of it. Try to make it work. Just get your degree. Get out of here. And and all will be well. So was it? No. Nope. Did you... <laughs> <laughs> so you got me no. on the edge of my seat. So, no. so you graduated college. Yeah, what man. happened to the relationship? Uh, well, then? you know, I moved away, uh, started working with, with the first church. Man, I'm, I'm a music and youth pastor now, right? You know, didn't know Jack really what I was doing. But, but it was like, man, finally, I get to do this passion in my heart, and I'm away from this guy. But there was, there was this, this kind of built-in expectation that we would talk every week you know, on the phone. And, um, and there was just a lot of manipulation still going on there. A lot of, uh, consuming my time, consuming my energies. And, um, and that went on man for another 10 years. Wow. So the after effects of kind of this semi control to, times of feeling like, man, I'm in a better place. So I'm going to try to take, you know, a better, better stance on some things and, and kind of turn the tables on this in a different kind of way. Um, those kind of things would happen, but, but the after effects, uh, went on for, yeah, for, for a good 10 years and, and didn't really process, uh, with anyone, uh, the things that had happened, you know. So 10 years, that's a long time. So were you in close proximity? I mean, you were serving at a church. Was mm-hmm. it a long ways from where this guy was? Did you guys meet every now and then, had coffee? or I mean, uh, Yeah, as crazy as, as it sounds, yeah. We were about three and a half hours apart. And so kind of carrying on this um, pseudo friendship, you know, uh, before I got married, um, you know, I would drive to, to Louisiana to see my parents, and I would stop to see him. I'd even spend the night, you know, um, just trying, in, in my mind, trying to still do the right thing, trying to go the extra mile, trying to to help him, you know. And, um, yeah, so kept doing that. But I dreaded it every time. I dreaded every phone call. Um, but, again, just didn't know 
Who do I talk to? How do I get out of this? So did you ever break the relationship or did he pass away or what happened? How did yeah, it end? yeah I, I did break the relationship. Um, and it really came through a part of my story is that I've been married. Uh, I'd been married before. I'm, I'm married now uh, to my wife of almost 22 years and uh, Karen. And um, in the context of us planning our wedding, I decided to ask him to play piano at our wedding. So uh, now Karen's wedding or your first wedding? Uh, well, probably both. I can't remember. <laughs> but but I think it was the second one. I think, you know, there was kind of this, again, just kind of a little bit of a dysfunctional, uh, I think he's going to be offended if I don't ask him to be a part. Actually, he had been the best man at my first wedding, believe it or not. Uh, that's how just crazy this is. And so, um, so yeah, we, uh, Karen and I, uh, were engaged and he had come up, um, and we were just kind of talking through the wedding music. And, um, one thing happened, I remember him being in the car with us and, and he, he made the statement to Karen. It's like, well, have you, have you told, or maybe it wasn't in the car, but it was on the phone, but have you told Karen that we're best friends? And uh, I knew in that, I know what he's doing. I know what he's doing. And um, uh, through a series of circumstances, he was not able to play at the wedding, and um, which was a good thing. But he sent a, he sent a wedding gift. And, um, and so after we had been on our honeymoon, a couple of weeks after that, he called one time and he said something about the gift. And he made... He made a derogatory statement about it, and it was something that we had on our list of things that we would like to have. And he he basically just derided that choice, you know, and um, and he just got obnoxious on the phone. And I it just oh man, it was just crawling all over me. I'm like, what in the world? And and finally, I just got tired of it, and I hung up. And I'd hung up on him before quite a few times, but could never just hang up and leave it hung up. You know, (laughs) I always felt like you need to answer, you need to fix this, you know? And, um, but I hung up and immediately the phone rang. That was the game. And Karen looked at me, she said, don't answer it. And I said, all right. And I didn't. And he left a scathing message, you know, very guilt laden message. But, uh, you know, sometimes God speaks to you in the most unusual places, man. And uh, uh, after we listened to that message, uh, I went to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) And uh, while I'm in the bathroom, you know, God gave me this heart peace. And all I know is I can just remember in my head the words, it's over, it's done, meaning you're free from this, be free from this. And I never called him again, and uh, and he never called me. And it was like a line in the sand was drawn, and um, and it was done, yeah. Wow. So, David, how would you encourage a person who is in a toxic relationship? my encouragement to you would be know that, um, that God loves you 
He, he will never love you any less, and he can never love you anymore. His love is 100% directed towards you. But I also encourage you to know that sometimes he, he may be waiting for you uh, to make a next step, you know, and that could be, I, I need to get a counselor. Uh, I need to go to something like Celebrate Recovery. I need to, I need to find a trusted friend and tell them what has happened to me, especially if you have been abused, whether that's physically, emotionally, sexually. I waited way too long to let somebody into my story, and I wasted a lot of years carrying a lot of stress and anxiety. And I know that conversation is hard, um, but I encourage you to do that. You, you can't carry it forever. You need to let somebody into it, you know. Bring it into the light. You carried it in the darkness too long. And and if you're, you know, if you're in a situation where right now, man, your life is is threatened and uh, you're in an abusive thing, maybe you're on the other side of, of toxic anger and your life is threatened, your family is threatened, I encourage you to reach out. I encourage you to reach out even to the police or to agencies that are here to help because... I thought I could fix a lot of things in my past. I thought I could fix the guy in college. I thought I could fix my first wife. And you know what? Um, I couldn't. And uh, there's just too much history on trying to fix toxic relationships when you're the only healthy one. You need to step out. Take care of you first. Put the oxygen mask on first. And then figure out what helping somebody else looks like after that. Thanks, David, for sharing your story with us. Hey, if you are in a toxic relationship that is unhealthy for you emotionally or maybe even physically, get out of that relationship or at the very least invite a qualified person into that space to discuss, advise, and help you in making wise decisions. Jesus Christ can bring healing to your hurt and guide you into healthy relationships. John 10.10 says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus Christ can bring healing and light into the darkness of your soul, but you have to be willing to change, and that might mean bringing others into your hurt. Change is possible, but if nothing changes, nothing changes. See you next time.